0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Action Jackson Bryant, right? Sure. And then there's Jerry over there, The Flash. That makes this Stuff You Should Know. That's right.
0: (laughs) If there's uh, one thing people say to me, is how much I'm like Carl Weathers. Sure. And how speedy Jerry is.
1: <laughs> why Why do I want to say that Carl Weathers had one arm in Action Jackson? I don't think that was the case. Has he ever had one arm in any of his... Oh, I think his arm gets pulled off in Predator. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm <laughs> conflating the two. That
0: sounds about right. I saw Predator, but just once, like, you know, when it came out.
1: I saw it within the last 12 months. Oh, and, yeah? I think it's even better now. as a grown-up. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay. I can really feel the tension like you're in the jungle there with everybody. It's amazing.
0: Have you been singing uh, the Buffalo Soldier song like constantly in your head?
1: Despite my best efforts, I can't stop.
0: Well, I looked up the lyrics because I was just, Mm. you know, I I know some of them, uh, but I I wanted to kind of see where exactly he was probably talking about the soldiers. Yeah. And there were some kind of on the nose references. Sure, he mentioned San Juan. Mentioned San Juan. What else? You know, fighting for America, fighting on arrival, mm-hmm. fighting for survival. Sure. Uh, I always I always got it wrong though. I thought he said dreadlock rock star.
1: No, he says dreadlock rasta.
0: I know. I learned that today. Dreadlock Rockstar. I've been, I've, rock star. I've been sing- well, I thought he was talking about
1: himself. That's hilarious.
0: I was singing it wrong. I mean, he was singing about himself.
1: No, he was singing about the Buffalo soldiers. They weren't Rastas. I guess some of them could have been. Maybe. We'll find out.
0: Anyway, I've been singing for 40 years dreadlock rock star. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. Like a dum dum.
1: Oh, that's all right. It's pretty close, man, and it yeah. still makes sense. The ones that don't make sense are the hilarious ones.
0: That just seems like a very like, I don't know, 1991 white college kid thing to sing.
1: Dreadlock rock star? Yeah. <laughs> dreadlock rock. Yeah.
0: <laughs> when you first start listening to Bob Marley. Uh-huh.
1: Okay, you ready? I'm ready. So we're talking Buffalo Soldiers, and it is not just a Bob Marley song. It's, If anything, the Bob Marley song is kind of like a, histor- a history lesson, which is kind of interesting. A bit. Um, but the Buffalo Soldiers was the name of some all-black regiments and then eventually all black soldiers in the United States, fighting in the United States military. That's right. From right after the Civil War all the way up until, I think, 1951, When the last all-black regiment was disbanded and the military was, in practice, desegregated.
0: Yeah, but when did you say that happened?
1: I think 1951.
0: Okay. Um, But they did not take on that name till post-Civil War.
1: Right. And at first it wasn't a name that they took on themselves— it was a name that was given to them, and there's a lot of dispute over where it came from, who is the first to use it, that kind of stuff. But it's a really interesting history, and it's not just an interesting like military history. There's a lot of like terrible, tragic irony involved. Sure, there's um, there's a, a, a this kind of overarching theme where you can make a case that the Buffalo Soldiers are the ones who actually paved the way for desegregation throughout the entire United States. Yeah. You can trace a direct line from their service to desegregation. It's pretty pretty amazing stuff. And yet there's still this kind of um, cloud that hangs over them historically because of one of the things that they participated in, which was the um, genocide of Native Americans at the behest of the U- white U.S. government.
0: Right, because they were trying to earn a place in Uh, white america right and gain some uh status and prestige and
1: white america was like we want you to do something for us first and we'll still probably not grant you that respect yeah which is kind of par for the course from what i understand as far as military service uh, and being black in america goes um in the battle of new orleans Mm -hmm. the black phalanx this uh, black regiment ended up pretty cool name yeah it really is um they ended up Basically, winning the battle um, against the British at the Battle of New Orleans, which actually came ironically after the end of the War of 1812, but it was still a decisive battle. Yeah. Um, and they had been mustered, a lot of them from local plantations by Andrew Jackson. And Jackson had promised them their freedom if they came and fought and won. Mm-hmm. And they came and fought and won. And Jackson said, yeah, sorry, you have to go back to your plantations. I was lying. Yeah, that's not a surprise. Yeah, but um, imagine that. And that was not the first time that that had happened to him. That was pretty much par for the course. Sure. While they were enslaved, they would be promised freedom for fighting. And then, no, after the fact. That's just not. It's not going to happen.
0: Yeah, and you know, like we said, the Buffalo Soldiers uh, post Civil War were, and we'll we'll get to um, like their formal designation and their regiments and stuff like that. Okay, but there had been uh, individuals enlisted and in, all the way back to the Revolutionary War. Yeah, there were you know black individuals that would go and fight, but they just weren't grouped in their own regiments. The first one was the Black Regiment. In uh, Rhode Island, I think. Yeah, in the Revolutionary War.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't we talk about them in a, a short stuff about um, the uh, Black Revolutionary War fighters, and it they moved up familiar. to Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. We definitely did. Did we? Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: so the Grabster put this uh, a lot of this together for us, which was a big help. And it's important to look at what was going on after the Civil War. And this unique set of circumstances that were created uh, that kind of led to these regiments being formed. Yeah. Which was uh, about 12,000, maybe a little bit more, black veteran soldiers from the Civil War all of a sudden needed jobs. And they were soldiers at this point. So they were like, you know, I'll keep doing this. This could be my career. Right. Like, give us a job. Yeah. Uh, In Reconstruction in the South, they needed federal troops um,
1: they needed white federal troops.
0: Well, yes, it was probably not a good idea to send uh, black troops for to oversee reconstruction. so to occupy the South. Yeah. Can you imagine? No, it would not have been. Oh good. my God. So they sent white troops, of course, but that created a vacuum elsewhere where they could use and utilize these black troops right. Um, there were four million slaves that were now free. and uh, Ed Hazard a guess that you know let's say a million one and a half million of these were, adult males that were ready to go and serve and fight if need be. Mm -hmm. And then we were going west. Mm -hmm. And we knew that there were Native Americans out there that were not going to go easily. Uh, There was Mexico looming on the horizon as Mm -hmm. potential conflict. Right. And because they were sending white soldiers to the south, uh, they needed people to go out west and kind of, you know, keep the peace in a way and take care of business in another way.
1: Or to remove... Native Americans forcibly from their ancestral land. That's right. So um, on July 28, 1866, Congress did something really surprising. They said, we've got all these kind of expansionist ideas. We've got the South that we need to occupy. We need a bigger army. Yeah. We're going to raise a huge peacetime army. And not only that, we're going to form some all-black regiments. We're going to let black people um, enlist for the first time ever— as peacetime soldiers.
0: Yeah, and partially because they just needed people and partially because they thought these black veterans that fought in the Civil War for the Union, they they should be rewarded with jobs.
1: Exactly. So for the first time, the federal government didn't renege on the offer of something better after having served and fought. That's right. As a soldier. So there was a big deal in just having, you know, allowing um, soldiers, uh, black soldiers to enlist during peacetime. But the fact that they could enlist meant that they could become officers as well, which meant West Point was open to black um, soldiers for the first time.
0: Which was a huge deal. Yeah. In 18... So in 1866 is when they expanded the army. Just a few years later, they wanted to shrink the army a little bit. Mm -hmm. So they consolidated a bunch of uh, regiments down to 25. And the original, I think it was six... Yeah. Uh, four infantry and two cavalry were now shrunk down and combined into the ninth cavalry, the tenth uh, cavalry. I'm saying both cavalry and cavalry. Sure, <laughs> just covering all your bases. Even though only one of them is correct, and that's cavalry. Uh, the twenty fourth infantry and the twenty fifth infantry.
1: Right, and the fact that they survived this downsizing of the army, because Congress went, we need a big army. Oh, that's too big. Let's get rid of some some soldiers. The fact that all black regiments survived is really miraculous because in that downsizing decree a few years later, it wasn't— it wasn't included, like, and we still need to keep black regiments in, intact. Right. Um, and William Tecumseh Sherman was no great friend to the black man by any stretch of the imagination. And he was in charge of downsizing these troops. And yet he knew enough that there were still Congress people, congressmen in Congress who had created the black regiments in the first place. Right. That they would not be very happy if he just dissolved them. So he kept them intact and actually just went from six to four.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because it was peacetime, you know, during wartime, especially back then, it was really pretty easy to get people to sign up and volunteer and fight for whatever side they were on. Yeah. But in peacetime, Mm -hmm. they found that they could get the cream of the crop of black soldiers Mm -hmm. because they didn't have as much opportunity. Right. So they could really be picky and get these really like super capable fighters. Right. Whereas on the other side uh, during peacetime, it was harder to get white soldiers that were as capable because they had much more opportunities to do other things beyond like, hey, I got nothing going on. I'll sign up for the army.
1: Right. Exactly. And in the army, too, um, there's a lot of mythologizing about Um, you know, how the black regiments were treated related to white regiments as well. And it seems like um, some historians have shown that if you trace the supply lines, Mm -hmm. the black regiments got the same shoddy and then increasingly better supplies as the white regiments at the same time. And in the army, you had just opportunities um, that just weren't afforded to you outside, like the opportunity to make money. You know, and to have savings and a pension, um, things that you could you could kind of bank on a future with, that that was just not part of of the black experience of, of black men back then. Right. You know. Uh,
0: I think that's a very robust setup and more.
1: Oh, oh, we're still doing setup.
0: <laughs> no, that's beyond. Like that's why I said and more. Okay. But I think what I'm trying to say is it's a great time for a break. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we'll be right back, and we'll talk a little bit about how this name came to be, right after this. So... There's a lot in here about how this name came to be, <laughs> Right. but uh, I think we condense it. Um, we can condense it to just a couple of versions. Uh, one of which was that the name may have come from the Native Americans as sort of an honor, like they're brave and they fight. Fierce. They're like fierce, like the buffalo.
1: And like uh, Sasha, fierce. I don't know what that is. That's like Beyonce's weird alias. <laughs> really? Why do stars, when you get to this enormous, huge point, decide to create an <laughs> alter ego that's always n- not good? Chris Gaines. Yes. <laughs> Learn the lesson from Chris Gaines. Yeah. Who else has done that? I feel it doesn't like matter. Chris Gaines. Some is of, enough them for 50 of them have worked. Ziggy
0: Stardust certainly worked. Captain Fantastic worked.
1: Fine. Chris Gaines
0: negates all those. No, I agree. Okay. I didn't know that. Uh, Beyonce, very short lived. Really? Mm-hmm. And what was the persona? Was it like really different? I guess
1: different? she was fierce. I don't know. I just heard her name a couple of times. Well, Beyonce's fierce, though, right? Right. You don't need an alter ego, Beyonce. Right. You're fierce enough. <laughs> you don't want to go too much fiercer. You should be her manager. <laughs> I should. <laughs> you know all the right moves. So <laughs>
0: that is uh, that is one of the stories. Was that it was uh, honor, a name of honor from the Native Americans, but. This to me sounds like it might have been just something kind of cooked up in history books.
1: Or it just kind of converted into that. Maybe. The um, Smithsonian Museum of African American History says, yeah, that stands as popular lore. That's one um, example. Another is basically there's two competing ones, and that is that the Native Americans did give this name to the the black soldiers, mm-hmm. but that they were referring to the uh, wooliness of the black soldier's hair compared mm-hmm. to white soldier's hair, and that if you look between the horns of a buffalo, that kind of like toupee almost that the buffalo is wearing, bears a vague resemblance to it, and that's where it initially came from.
0: Yeah, and there's, like, direct evidence from letters and stuff of the time of this. Um, whether or not it was true or not, it was it was at least down in print as being the reason. Yeah. But we don't know for sure. <clears throat> uh, and we don't know... For sure, how they felt about the name other than it seems like as time went on, they kind of embraced the name right as a sure. designation. yeah. Um, and in one case, there was one troop that did use a bison. Uh, on a patch on their uniform, mm-hmm. but then bison were used on other patches on uniforms of white soldiers too.
1: Uh, I think it was strictly black regiments. Oh, really? Just later ones that weren't the 9th, 10th, 24th, or 25th. Oh, gotcha. That that was my interpretation of Okay. It. But, but yeah, by the time, I think, 1911 is when that first patch appears. But, so by the time 1911 rolls around, the black regiments had... Um, had totally, like, taken on Buffalo Soldier as a, a name of honor.
0: Yeah, and, and Ed points out, and I think mm-hmm. it's fair, it's easy now in 2020 to look back at um, two, uh, two ethnic groups that were, you know, kept under the thumb of the white man right. and say that, oh, you know, the Native Americans respected them as fierce fighters, and the black soldiers respected the Native Americans. Mm-hmm. But that's probably retroactive um, revisionist, history. revisionist history because, you know, there were plenty of cases where uh, the Buffalo soldiers referred to them as, you know, savages mm-hmm. and one case of one soldier, you know, going as a uh, costume party dressed up in, I guess, what you would call a red face. Oh, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it seems like that's sort of cooked up these days. Like they really had much respect for one another right. during their battles, but I don't know if that's the case.
1: No, but you can understand how that would how people would want to do that sure you know because i mean the the sending african american soldiers out to remove native americans from their land with violence yeah at the behest of white people it's not a good story no it's a terrible <laughs> story yeah it it's, takes a
0: bad story and makes it worse
1: and then at the same time um there's a real silver lining to it. There's that good story that, like, black soldiers served as heroes for um, the black community in America as a whole at a time when they really needed some black heroes, you know? Yeah. When the Jim Crow South was really starting to to solidify. Um, so it's not, like, an all-bad story, but it's definitely not an all-good story either. So people want, like, a nice storybook ending for sure, which is surely where that came
0: from. Yeah, I think so. So should we talk a little bit about... Um... What they did? Yeah, we should. Their service record?
1: Yeah, when they were um, first assembled in, uh, I think, the late to mid-1860s, they were almost immediately moved out to the frontier, Kansas, then Texas, New Mexico, um, pushing further and further west as their work was increasingly successful.
0: Yeah, and usually under the command of white officers. Yeah. Um, it was not looked at as some great assignment if you were a white officer uh, to go west and command one of the Buffalo Soldier Regiments.
1: Yeah, it would have been like being stationed in Alaska or something like that. Alaska's great. Although some some white commanding officers did rise to the occasion. Yeah, and know?
0: had a lot of great things to say about the soldiers, too. For sure.
1: Some of them definitely did not rise to the occasion and actually went the other way. Right. You know?
0: Yeah, and you mentioned West Point. Uh, this was a huge deal because, like you said, now uh, these young men could go uh, attend West Point and come out officers upon entry into the army. Uh-huh. Uh, there were quite a few cases. One was uh, a man named Henry Flipper. He was the first black graduate of West Point in 1877, came out as second lieutenant in the 10th cal- uh, Cavalry, and was basically set up with a court martial. There was a case where There was uh, some—he was put in charge of a quartermaster safe to, like, guard it, basically, and and take charge of it. Money becomes missing. He uh, kind of freaks out and lies about it. Uh, It's kind of all evidence pointing to the fact that he didn't take the money, Mm -hmm. but he did lie about where it went.
1: What did he lie about then? I couldn't find that. I think that
0: that the initial money was missing at all, maybe. Oh, okay. I'm not really sure. Gotcha. But it looks like it was a setup. He was acquitted of the main charge even back then. Yeah. And was found guilty of an added charge of conduct unbecoming of an officer. The lying part. Right. Uh, And was dismissed from the Army, which even back then was uh, an overblown sentence compared to the similar charges of white officers.
1: Right. And the Army at the time, he could have gotten his discharge changed to honorable discharge. But the Army apparently didn't have any procedure to do that. So it was up to the commander-in-chief, Chester A. Arthur... Uh, to decide yay or nay, and he just for, he just let it pass by. Right, but he so um, uh, lieutenant was he a lieutenant? Second lieutenant. Second lieutenant Flipper went to his grave, saying that he was innocent. Mm-hmm. And um, he in the nineties, I think nineteen ninety eight, Bill Clinton finally pardoned him. Billy boy, he did, and Clinton, that ghoul, ordered him uh, <laughs> exhumed and reburied with full military honors. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But they suspect that Clinton just wanted to see what the body looked like. Come on.
0: (laughs) He said, let's do this right.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he probably did say that.
0: So there were another couple of cases, John Hanks, Alexander and Charles Young. uh, They were West Point grads early on. They went on to lead these uh, regiments. And uh, that's not to say that at West Point it was smooth sailing, of course. Right. You know, they had a very hard time there. And still persevered.
1: Yeah, extraordinarily. Um, Ed points out that in the Tuskegee Airmen episode, too, we, I think we talked about how the um those guys who went through West Point had, or the military academies, had just an awful time of it, too.
0: Yeah, I mean, that happened. I mean, it probably still happens to some degree. Sure. But, I mean, I read The Lords of Discipline. I did, too. And saw the movie. I
1: don't know if I saw the movie or not. And that was, what year was that set? That was... It's Probably 60s. Was it? I don't remember. What was the problem with that guy? He just was soft or something? Wasn't it? He, like, was, was uh, um, uh, t- he had feelings?
0: <laughs> you know, I don't remember. I haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah. But, um, that was the Citadel, not right. West Point.
1: Which is Navy, I think, right? Air Force? Marines? I'm Coast Guard? I'm not sure Guard, what the Citadel is. National Guard? I don't know. <laughs> Cub Scouts? Yes, it was Cub Scouts, okay. Citadel, famous Cub
0: Scout uh, <laughs> Where military they'll break institution. your spirit. <laughs> so uh, these regiments had about 1,000 troops and officers, but um, they were constantly undersupplied. Yeah. And like you said earlier, it's there's no evidence that they were intentionally undersupplied.
1: No, but it's a myth that they were.
0: Yeah, but kind of everyone out West was, because it takes a long time to get stuff out there, and a lot of those old Civil War the weapons and equipment were pretty shoddy anyway.
1: Yeah, plus, I mean, it's not really easy to come by water in the New Mexico desert where you're fighting the Cheyenne or the Apache. Um, Like, so you have horses that need water, too, because you're a cavalry unit. Mm -hmm. Um, And the horses were breaking down. It was a really bad time as they were moving further and further west because we tend to think of the United States military, like, in the terms of today, this just incredibly well-oiled logistical juggernaut. Sure. That was not the case after the Civil War. As a matter of fact, until, I believe, the Spanish-American War, the United States military was looked upon internationally as kind of like a, not, not not the best around. Oh, yeah? Certainly not the best equipped. The logistics, we didn't have that kind of stuff down. You didn't hear it from me, but... Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, th- th- and this is, you know, the, the army that these guys were enlisted in. Yeah. So, they were dealing with an army that was not was finding its feet and then also on the frontier of the United States at a time when yeah. they're protecting the people building the railroads. So right. th- there's not even the railroads out there yet. One of their jobs was to protect railroad uh, workers, mail carriers, yeah. people who were on express- cattle drives. Yeah, um, th- they, these were the, the jobs they were tasked with.
0: Uh, well, they were also fighting, like we said, in what was known as the Indian Wars, mm-hmm. uh, including some of the some of the big ones. I think uh, we
1: need to do a, a big old episode on the Indian Wars. Yeah.
0: yeah. Let's do it. Okay. Wounded Knee. Yeah. Uh, the White River War. Yeah. I'd never heard of that one.
1: I, I looked it up. The war is not a term for most of these. Just it should battles. be massacre. No, it oh, oh, gotcha. should be straight up massacres. Yeah. Although here's the other thing too. This is really easy for guys like us to do, especially in retrospect, uh-huh. is um, what's called like a mythologizing the noble savage, right? Right. Where the where we kind of make it seem like the Indians were just the people who you know kind of meekly accepted their fate and were just rolled over by the U.S. government through this westward expansion. That's not the case. In almost every case, the further west we got, the fiercer the fighting got. Yeah, they pushed back for, for sure. sure. They engaged in massacres that included killing uh, women and children and non-combatants. Right. Um. Both sides did. So it's not like the the uh, Native Americans were just innocent of of bloodshed. Right. But it's important to remember that they were they were defending their lands from invaders. They were the insurgents mm-hmm. in that. So there's like a certain amount of Um, moral higher ground that they're afforded just for being in that position. Right. You know? Oh, for sure. But it's just, that's the thing. That's why I've always been fascinated about history. It's like, it's never just, you know, black and white.
0: Yeah, there's so much nuance that gets overlooked, especially if you were raised in like, you know, public schools in America. Exactly. Not a lot of nuance going on. Right, and the white
1: people swooped in and everything was great. Exactly.
0: So by the 1890s, the Indian Wars ended um, the reservations popped up uh, or they were just flat out massacred, like you said, or imprisoned. And this is when the Buffalo Soldiers started uh, taking part in some of the land disputes out west with white settlers. Yeah. Uh, the removal of the, the Sooners in Oklahoma. That's huge. It is huge.
1: Because all of a sudden black regiments show up and they're like, you you might be white, but you need to get out of here because right. you didn't follow the rules. That's right. That's a huge change from a decade or so before when, yeah. like, those people would have been enslaved in the South. Right. It's, it's a big deal.
0: Uh, what else? You mentioned San Juan from uh, the, the Bob Marley song.
1: Yeah, that's a, that was when they entered the national stage for the first time.
0: Yeah, fighting in Cuba and Puerto Rico.
1: Yeah, it's very confusing. They fought at the Battle of San Juan Hill mm-hmm. in Cuba and the Battle for San Juan in Puerto Rico. That's right. Under the 10th Regiment. Mm-hmm. Under the command of a guy named uh, General John Pershing, yes, who you might be familiar with is known as Blackjack Pershing, the famous World War One general.
0: Yeah, I had heard. I knew I had heard of him. He
1: was named Blackjack because he was in command of the Black Regiments, the Tenth Cavalry.
0: And I mean, I think in the First World War, he was a little less um, willing to. St- stand up and, like, advocate for them. But by the yeah. time World War II came around, he was.
1: Okay. So I didn't hear about the World War II part, but that was a pretty big betrayal in World War I because he led the 10th Cavalry up, up San Juan Hill in Cuba um, along with the Rough Riders, along with white uh, infantry. The, the This battle was one of the first ones right before the turn of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, where there were—if you were standing back, like, looking at this battle— there's black guys, there's white guys, there's black guys on horses. There's Spanish people coming down here. Like there's all these people, but the the black um, soldiers and the white soldiers were were intermingling, fighting together side by side, yeah. and they won. And Teddy Roosevelt said it was all me. I, I won the Battle of, of Cuba, San Juan and Cuba. Sure. But historians say actually no, these black regiments, specifically the Tenth Cavalry, Really won this battle yeah. in the Spanish-American War down in Cuba, and it was huge. It put the Buffalo Soldiers on the map yeah. for really the first time ever in the American popular consciousness. And like um, black families around America, like you could go into their dining room and there'd be a print of, like, a painting of the Battle of San Juan with the Buffalo soldiers storming the hill. Like, um, one historian put it that they were their, that generation's Jackie Robinson and Joe Yeah, Like, they were the heroes. Like I was saying, they were the heroes at a time when Jim Crow laws were really coming into into force. Right. At a really, really uh, bleak time for black America. All of a sudden... There's these Buffalo soldiers that basically helped win the Spanish-American War, fighting alongside white soldiers, too, and being equal in that respect.
0: And that's why you'll see all those statues right next to Teddy Roosevelt's exactly, statues. Exactly,
1: exactly.
0: <laughs> and you know what? I may have made up that part about General Pershing advocating more of World War II, now that I think about it.
1: Oh, well, that was—I didn't get to the betrayal thing, Chuck. So when World War I rolled rolled around, he was in charge of, I think, basically everybody in Europe— and he turned his back on his black regiment yeah. and all black soldiers and basically said, no, you guys fight in your own regiment, so we don't want you fighting side by side. And But the French were like, hey, come fight with sure. us. We'll, uh, we'll command you. And, and that, that happened. That reminded me, the French were also the first ones to recognize officially the Native American code talkers, even before the United States did. Oh, I remember that. And they also used black aviators in World War I, too. So up with the French... Historically speaking. That's right. There's a t-shirt. They gave us those fries. Sure. And that bread. You mean freedom fries? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Freedom bread. I feel like I'm talking a lot. Oh, yeah? Am I? I mean, no more than usual. Okay. Freedom bread.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So in World War II, uh, the Buffalo soldier units were used a lot. Um, A lot of times, though, they were not on the front lines. They were uh, stuck to administrative and support duties. Um, but they did join in combat here and there uh, in, on both uh, the theaters in the war, um, you, mostly toward, toward the end of World War II. Um, but it was, you know, a lot of this, a lot of the good that you see coming out of what the Buffalo Soldiers did was foundation work mm-hmm. and groundwork for desegregating the military, for uh, showing that these guys are just the same as white soldiers, they're uh, just as capable. Uh, they fight just as bravely, um, and it really kind of laid that groundwork for the desegregation after the war.
1: Yes, like a direct line for it. It's weird, but they basically, a way to put it is that the white America said, okay, all right, If you uh, we'll, we'll give you a shot. Mm-hmm. You go out and, and serve in battle and let's see what you what you can do. And then maybe we'll see what, what we'll see from there. And just by ge- being given that one opportunity to to show that they could do things that were presumed they couldn't, like yeah. act bravely and fight um, and be a good soldier that was, like, you know, good at being a soldier, mm-hmm. they proved that all of these myths about how black people couldn't do these things were wrong. And that kind of thing opens up some people's eyes to, okay, well, what else Do I think about black people that are wrong, and it's weird to think about because on a on a um, on a social level that that's what it takes that that people's minds can be changed like that. But historically speaking, in retrospect, like that's how it happens. Yeah, you know, like one prejudice is tested, and then all of a sudden, other prejudices start. Falling away. Slowly, yeah, kind of kind of falling over like dominoes. Totally. Very, very slowly, though. Yeah. Unfortunately.
0: Like dominoes, you can only picture falling fast. I know. <laughs> do that in slow-mo. It's
1: almost a terrible <laughs> analogy. Almost.
0: So uh, it's crazy to think, but um, even though desegregation happened uh, long before this, it takes a-, a while for that to fully happen. Right. And they were Buffalo soldier units in the Korean War. All black units in the Korean War.
1: There was a... But it, it was 1948, I think, that Truman signed this act desegregating the military.
0: Yeah, and I think it was... Uh, it took three more years. 1951 was when the final uh, final one was disbanded, the 27th.
1: Right, but that's why I was saying you could trace a direct line of desegregation from the military because oh, yeah. that was the first chance that black America had to show that it could be treated equally and that it could act equally. Yeah, um, And... They showed that, and it led to desegregation in the military, and then three years after the actual in-practice desegregation of military Mm -hmm. uh, regiments, there was the Brown versus Board of Education ruling, which, not in practice, but in theory, desegregated schools. Right. So it went army, schools, and then eventually, socially, it just kept going. Yeah. But it was because of the Buffalo soldiers and in, in their service, D- directly, undisputedly.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's crazy to think as late as the Korean War, though, some of those units were still fighting. Yeah, it is Because when I think of Mash, it doesn't feel modern, but it doesn't feel like Buffalo soldier territory.
1: Right. Like yeah, the was... Buffalo soldiers, you think of like 19th century yeah, American West, not sure. 1950s Korea. No,
0: you don't think of Hawkeye and his gin still. Uh, I guess it was one black character on MASH with a very unfortunate name, but we won't
1: talk about that. I'm not familiar. No, good. I don't remember.
0: Uh, all right. Well, I think we should take a break and come back and talk about what is to me okay. uh, one of the cooler aspects of this whole story. The Bob Marley song. <laughs> no. We'll be right back. We're back, uh, and we're going to talk about what I think is one of the coolest little parts here of this whole story, which I never knew. If you've ever been to Sequoia National Park or Yosemite National Park or some other national parks out west, mm-hmm. and you're hiking a trail or driving down a road, uh, you might have the Buffalo Soldiers to thank for that trail and those roads. Yeah. Uh, they, And it's one of their, their highlight achievements to me is once we established the national parks Teddy Roosevelt again yeah built statues of him right <laughs> um, you had to enforce this stuff cuz this was the first time we were like wait a minute this is protected land mm-hmm. you can't just come in here and take the timber or hunt you know the animals like right. there are rules now
1: you set up like you set aside grazing land you sure. set aside uh, national parks libertarians they take issue with that kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> and you need to have buffalo soldiers to fight them off.
0: That's right. So from 1891 to 1913, about 25 years or so, these uh, some of these black regiments were essentially the first park rangers. yeah. They didn't have that name at the time. Um, but they kept the poachers at bay, uh, stopped the illegal grazing and the timber thieves. Mm-hmm. Uh, they fought wildfires.
1: Yeah, I didn't get a chance to like really look into this, but I wonder what 1913 wildfire fighting was like. I'll bet I it know. was real dicey. Bucket brigade stuff, probably. Because like 2020 firefighting is dicey, yeah. wildfire fighting. But a hundred years ago, man, I'll no, bet it was. I can't imagine. Good lord.
0: Uh, but like I said, with the trails and stuff, a lot of uh, some of the more significant trails and roads, some, some of the, the buildings. Yeah, some of the older cabins, mm-hmm. they were built and constructed by Buffalo soldiers, which yeah. is just super cool.
1: Yeah. So if you find a building in Yosemite or Sequoia National Parks, that's from 1891 to 1913. Yes, then it was probably built by yeah. Buffalo soldiers. Or hiking a trail. Yeah. This is all just super cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. They also rode bicycles uh, around the, the place too, which is kind of neat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Chuck, the last Buffalo soldier, and I mean like original Buffalo soldier, uh, Mark Matthews, he died on September 6, 2005. He was interred at Arlington National Cemetery. He was 111 years old. And he actually fought under General Pershing in the 10th yeah. Cavalry uh, on the hunt for Pancho Villa. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's pretty I think, uh, I don't
0: know if we mentioned that. How many medals of honor? Were there 23?
1: I saw 23. The National Museum of uh, African American History says 18. I'm going to go with them. All right. Somewhere between 18 and 23, let's say that.
0: Yeah, so, you know, the I guess the moral of the story is that they did provide this— um, direct line to desegregation, Mm -hmm. not only through the Army, but like you were saying, all through America. Mm -hmm. But sadly, a lot of them did exit the military. Um, Some of them did have a little uh, higher status and a leg to stand on. Many of them didn't. Uh, There was a study of lynchings in the U.S. that found that black military veterans were targeted uh, and lynched more than non-veteran black people with the idea uh, that it was a real threat in uh, sure. the racist white South for a black man to leave the army with some rank and some status. And
1: feeling guns. Feeling
0: good, guns, feeling good
1: about himself. Don't forget in the Tulsa Massacre yeah. episode, it was the World War One vets who were like, "Uh, no, we're going to go defend this boy from being lynched right. with guns. They showed up with guns. I think um, I, I remember in the Black Panther episode, too, um, they, they traced a direct line of this... Um, the sense of, like, you need to defend yourself and protect yourself with firearms, mm-hmm. they trace that directly to World War One veterans. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So uh, there is um, uh, a, a terrible logic to that, I guess.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, there was also a terrible um, senator and governor of Mississippi named James uh, Vardaman, who was just straight-up white supremacist, like no matter how you slice it.
1: You could have just said senator from Mississippi.
0: (laughs) In 1917. Uh, Sure. (laughs) He spoke to the U.S. Senate, and he really kind of crystallizes how they felt about uh, black veterans in 1917. On the Senate floor, he said, once you impress the Negro with the fact that he is defending the flag and inflate his untortured uh, soul with military airs, his political rights must be respected. Um, and he wasn't saying like, and that's great.
1: Yeah, so let's respect that.
0: Yeah, this was a, a warning basically.
1: Right. And he was uh, over, over uh, looked. He, they didn't listen to him. No, ultimately, because they did continue having black soldiers as soldiers and eventually desegregated, which led to desegregation in America, which is pretty great.:
0: That's right. I would love to hear from some current African American military personnel. Because I want to know what the current sort of uh, temperature is as an active service person.
1: Mm. Oh, what the racism's like in the military? Yeah. Sure.
0: I'm sure, you know, there'll be different versions of that story, Mm -hmm. uh, depending on who you're in contact with and Mm -hmm. what your particular, like, platoon is like.
1: Yeah, I wonder, though, because the military is like some kind of weird simulacrum of American society. It is. I wonder if it's more racist or less racist. I think there's a chance you could go either way. I mean, my guess
0: is less. You know, my uh, like I said, my brother-in-law before and is a Marine and right. pretty high up, sure. you could say. And every time—I've been on these Marine bases a lot, and it all seems like they're all sort of, you know, got that thinking, that groupthink going on. Like, right. we're, we're just Marines. Like, n- none of us are a color. We're green.
1: Well, I've seen Full Metal Jacket, right, and there are a lot of racist stuff in there. No, <laughs> I'm sure. Okay, yeah, could go either way. It could go either way. I would like to hear um, that as well. I'd also like to hear from any Native American listeners to know what what they were taught about Buffalo Soldiers, too. What was For passed sure. down within the different tribes? Yeah because they contacted all sorts of different tribes from the the Lakota Sioux up in the north uh-huh. down to the Apaches in New Mexico and Mexico. Yeah. Um, yeah. Teach us, everyone. Yeah. We'll, we'll read them on Listener Mail. Uh, if you want to know more about Buffalo Soldiers, there's a lot of really great stuff to read. Uh, and you can't really go wrong with a guy named Frank Schubert, who is a scholar of them, mm-hmm. of Buffalo Soldiers. And he's got a lot of articles on the web and I believe some books too. Um, And since I said Frank Schubert, it's time for Listener Mail.
0: Oh, no, it's not. Oh, that's right. You know what it's time for. Hit him, Chuck. It is time for Administrative Details. So, uh, we haven't done this in a little while. If you're new to the show, Administrative Details is where... We take a couple of minutes, we're gonna do this on this episode and the next.
1: You got that straight.
0: To read out uh, some thank yous. Tell them, Chuck. For some of the kindnesses that people throw our way. That's right. Whether they be uh, physical totems, like (laughs) T-shirts and buttons and to confectionaries like cookies and pastries and cheeses. I like that. Uh, What I did not do on this one, and I feel bad because you probably did, is write down all the names of all the postcards and letters.
1: I wrote down the ones that I, I, yeah, I think I've got basically everybody. And we should say we almost always miss somebody yeah, or a few. Yeah. So if we don't say your name and you've not been thanked on a previous administrative detail, please get in touch with us so we can correct that.
0: That's right. And if you have a letter or a postcard that is on my desk, uh, I'll include those in the next batch because now I feel bad. Bam. All right, let's go through these.
1: Oh, and there's also some people who I don't have names for, but we do have the items. So you can also write in and be like, that was me. That's right. For example, the very nice person who gave us almond cookies and whiskey cake at our Orlando show. Oh, that's right. Our live show in Orlando. Don't remember or don't have the name of who gave us that, but thank you for them.
0: Uh, Katie from Davis, California sent us some uh, cool little notebooks. Uh, They they were little notebooks like um, Schemes was like the title of one of them. Oh, right. Where you can write down your schemes. Band names. Just sort of fun names on the covers of these notebooks. Yeah.
1: Thanks a lot. A huge, huge thanks, as always, to our good friends Hillary and Mike Lozar. And their good friends, the people at Flathead Lake Cheese, for all the cheese. That's right. Flathead Lake cheese is far and away my favorite cheese in the world. It's good cheese. They make very good cheese. You guys cannot go wrong. Just go get some Flathead Lake cheese and you'll love it.
0: Yeah, a lot of the, I don't know if they specialize in
1: Gouda, but we seem to be on the Gouda mailing list. They make a hopped Gouda that is my favorite. Have you had it? Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. It's it's yum. It has hops in it. I know. Like it's a beer, but it's cheese. (laughs) Uh,
0: And while we're on the Lozars, uh, Hillary and Mike and Coop um, I just got this today. They sent us aprons. <laughs> yeah. Word butcher. Yeah. Aprons. That is so appropriate. So it's a knife going into the lettering of a word butcher because I don't know if you guys know this, but we are well known to mispronounce everything.
1: Yeah, to butcher your words. <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. So uh, uh, Smoty from France sent us a tea card. With some, lay two marmots tea attached. Thank you, Smotty. Yeah.
0: Uh, Jess Fowl sent us his game that he designed. Mm -hmm. Philosophy the Game, or better yet, Drunk Philosophy. (laughs) Nice. That's a great name.
1: Uh, Katie Barnes from the Barnes Made Soap Company for the wonderful soap. All of them are really good, but I strongly recommend the Autumn Fig and the uh, Mariner Brine Bar. Good stuff. Oh, you can head over to Barnesmade, B-A-R-N-E-S-M-A-D-E.com for some of Katie's soaps.
0: Uh, Becky in France uh, sent us planetary coasters that she made. And her studio Mm -hmm. is uh, seafidstudio.com. That is C-E-P-H-E-I-D studio.com. If you want some planetary coasters, they are pretty
1: spacey and awesome. Uh, Kevin Reuter. Gave us Basil Hayden and Bullet Rye. You remember that at our show at the Bell House? Oh yes. And even wrapped them up as Christmas presents. That's right. Which is just lovely. Thanks a lot, Kevin. And at, funny enough, at the show, somebody asked us like what our what our, like drink we would want to have on a desert island if we could only have one. Mm-hmm. And both of us were saying gin drinks. And he was like, "Well, I, I guess I guessed wrong with the Basil Hayden no, and the he did Bullet." Not and I was guess like, wrong. "No, dude, you you nailed it. We're <laughs> yeah. all inclusive."
0: Uh, our buddy Van Nostra and I feel like he sent us more than this so if you have something else let us know yeah uh, we just hung out with him and his uh, wonderful wife Leah yes uh, in Seattle they sent us uh, he sent us some records some awesome records. Uh, Smurfs disco duck Lawrence yeah. Welk yeah. and Uh, John Denver, the John Denver Muppets Christmas.
1: And you know what? Um, Van Nostrand gave us books before, and one of them was about, uh, oh, I can't say yet. uh, Oh, really? Because the live show's not out. But he gave us a book about the live show years ago, and I never got around to reading it. Oh, that's right. They reminded me after the show, they're like, "Uh, you know, we sent you that book, you dummy. Oh, yeah. I said, I'll have to read it now.
0: Uh, Will and Katie Lynn Lee sent us coffee from Coffee by Design. So nice. Delish.
1: Uh Let's see, Nicole Collins, uh, DO, Doctor of Osteopathy, sent us a copy of her book, Insight, which is on vision, like real vision, mm-hmm. and the miracle that is vision. So check it out. It's I thought you were gonna, Insight.
0: I thought you were going to say DO, Doctor of Metal. I, w-
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, w- <laughs> I was um, delivered by a DO. And one of the things they do is they adjust you. Like you're a baby and they adjust you like a chiropractor when you're born. I was born breech, so the DO adjusted me in reverse order. Apparently, everyone in the delivery room gave him a golf clap afterward.
0: And you waved your hand and said, thank you, everyone. Yeah, thank you.
1: (laughs) I have a taste for this applause thing. Fart, gurgled, fart.
0: (laughs) Uh, Indigo Proof from Portland uh, sent me a gift certificate for one free denim repair because nice. I complained about my Levi's sure. blowing out. Yeah. So they said, send me those jeans and we'll fix them for you. Yep, That's nice. indigo proof. And where else do they fix jeans?
1: Portland, Oregon. Uh, that is a jean fix in town totally. for sure. I've got a, a super old one from not this past October. But the October before last, Chuck. Wow. Do you remember Kathy with a K Tosh at, I believe, our Phoenix show or our Salt Lake City show? One of the two. are you talking about? Gave us lasso. Yeah. Real live lassos. Rope and rope. And she said, go on to YouTube and learn how to lasso now. Yeah. And I've yet to do that, but I still have my lasso. So thanks a lot, Kathy. Me we too. We appreciate you.
0: Yeah, it's not only cool, to because I will try and learn that one day. But it looks cool hanging on a wall,
1: for sure. You know, and also I think Kathy is a postal worker, so hopefully she dug our um, our going postal episode. I haven't heard from her. That's right. Email us, Kathy, and let us know how we did.
0: I have a, a correction to read, but I'll just wait for listener mail for
1: that one. Oh yeah, that was I yeah. Think that was me. That was my bad. Was it just you? I think so.
0: Somebody else made it seem like it was me too. Um, how many more should we do for this one?
1: I don't know, let's each do three more.
0: Okay, Anna Parker. Uh, She is a painter and muralist uh, who did this lovely painting of uh, my three dogs, two of which are uh, now dearly departed, but it's very, very sweet, and uh, speaking of which, you can find those, uh, her work, at SweetTeaMurals.com.
1: Oh, yes, very nice. Uh, Let's see. um, Lance Roper, who's my boy from Toledo, Mm -hmm. who uh, is from actual coffee in Toledo, sent me some really good coffee. So check out actual coffee in Toledo. Actual coffee.
0: Yes. Uh, Betty Epperly sent us voodoo dolls of us.
1: Oh, I want to know who made that. Those are so cool. They
0: are yeah. They're like really uh, cute and they're laden with little Easter eggs. Mm -hmm. Like I'm holding all kinds of crazy things that all relate to shows. I'm holding
1: a magic mushroom.
0: Really? Yeah. Well,
1: that's from a show. (laughs) Uh,
0: But they had no pins, we should point out. So they weren't uh, voodoo dolls that were out to harm us. No. Uh, her son Josh introduced her to the show oh, and her okay.
1: husband. Way to go, Josh. So thanks, Betty. Yeah, Momo's riding my foot on mine, too. Right? Oh, really? Yeah. That's very cute. Uh, let's see, um, the wooden egg and special egg coasters, S-Y-S-K egg coasters from the very kind people at Good Egg World.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right, I got one more for this uh, a dish. Okay. Adam Peterson, this was a really cool gift. He sent us two bottles of Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm from the very last run of returnable bottles that Coca-Cola ever did. Oh, wow. Uh, They were small, family-run bottler in uh, Winona, Minnesota. And he said his in-laws had run it since 1932. So these were the last run of returnables that came off the line, and they're even stamped with their little family bottler name and everything. Oh, that's really cool. It's very cool. All
1: right, last one. This one came from the Toronto show. Guy named Phil Bowen gave us each a prosthetic eye. Oh man, that's one of the best ever. One of the best (laughs) gifts either one of us has ever gotten. so cool. So thanks a lot for our prosthetic eyes, Phil. We still have them. I think there's a picture of us wearing them too. Yeah. Okay. Uh, If you want to get in touch with us just to say hi or to send us something, it doesn't matter. You can go on to stuffyoushouldknow.com and follow our social links there, I think. And uh, as always, you can send us an email. Wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com.
0: Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.